Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, I've spent most of the last few days on a break in Scotland, but I'm happy to say that with the help of my colleague, Stuart Watson, we were able to bring you another hour-long episode of the podcast. He will be summarising the news coming out of the investment trust sector in the past five days, although, as it happens, it's been a fairly news-light week. While I've been talking to two more fund managers, both of them operating in markets that look interesting to me on current valuations, those markets being the UK and Japan. My first conversation is with Paul Folkes-Davis, who is chairman of Rising Sun Management, the investment advisor to Nippon Active Value, ticker NAVF, which is a specialist activist Japanese trust that first came to the market just over three years ago and is looking to build on its uh, promising three-year track record. Uh, And the second is a return conversation with Ian Lance, co-manager of the Temple Bar Investment Trust, ticker TMPL which sits in the UK equity income sector. Ian and his colleague Nicholas Purvis have been managing the trust since winning the mandate for their farm management company RWC in the autumn of 2020, taking over from Investec, and returns to date have comfortably exceeded their benchmark. In the markets, it was also a relatively quiet week with the FTSE up just 50 basis points over the five days, the all share positive by an even smaller margin, Uh, while the small cap and AIM indices were down just a fraction of 1%. Uh, European equity markets in general were the strongest on average over the week, uh, while the US indices uh, edged very marginally down, well, flat for all intents and purposes. The investment trust index, meanwhile, was down 0.4%, with a number of smaller, growthier names and several private equity trusts among the list of best performers, uh, and commercial property trusts among those down more than 4%. There has been a bit of a rally there, So this is a bit of a pause in that particular process. Uh, Bond yields were generally firmer, while oil and copper both fell, underlying investors' mixed perceptions about the economic outlook. On the economic front, the standout data was the release of the latest inflation figures in the UK, which confirmed that inflation, whether you look at consumer prices or retail prices, uh, inflation continues to run at a double-digit rate, uh, coming in higher than consensus expectations. That's going to make it harder for the Bank of England to uh, resist putting up interest rates again. We will be back again next week. If you're interested in seeing the slides from my presentation at the Master Investor Show last weekend, you can find a link on the Moneymakers website homepage. Thank you to all those who came up to speak to me at the well-attended event. My fuller review of the first quarter in the markets is also available for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle. Over now to Stuart for a summary of this week's investment trust results and announcements. We had annual results for the calendar year 2022 from Schroeder UK Public Private. Originally known as Woodford Patient Capital, this trust has changed its name again this week, though. It is now called Schroeder's Capital Global Innovation Trust, and its ticker is changing from SUPP to INOV, that's I-N-O-V. And this changes to better reflect a mandate that was approved by shareholders last year. 
It was a brutal 12 months for the trust, though, with the NAV declining by 41%. The share price decline was even larger, 53%. Legacy Woodford-era investments still make up about 8% of the trust NAV, and they caused most of the damage. Over half the total NAV decline was due to the share price drop at Oxford Nanopore, whose share price fell from about £7 to £2.50 over the course of 2022. It's still the trust's largest holding by quite a distance, it makes up about 23% of the trust's year-end NAV. There was also a sizeable loss due to the full write-down of Rutherford Health, which was wound up last year. Some other changes were announced in these results. Roger Doig is stepping away from the management team, and he will be replaced by Harry Rakes, who becomes co-manager alongside Tim Creed. And this was said to be due to the greater emphasis that the trust is now putting on its private equity side aiming to have about 75% of its portfolio in unlisted investments. A five-yearly continuation vote is being introduced, with the first one taking place at the 2025 AGM. So that gives the trust two more years to improve its performance and narrow its wide discount, which is currently some 45%. And when that vote is held, Schroders will have been in charge for about five and a half years, and the trust will be about 10 years old. Between now and the 2025 AGM, a quarter of any cash realisations from the legacy investments will be used to make share repurchases, with the board hoping to buy back at least 5% of outstanding shares in both the years 2023 and 2024. Invesco Perpetual UK Smaller Companies, ticker IPU, that released annual results to the 31st of January, and these showed a 17.5 NAV decline compared to a 12.4% fall for its benchmark. And that was almost a mirror image of 2021, when the trust gained 18.8% and its benchmark gained 11.6%. So the net effect is that both the trust and its benchmark are broadly flat over the last two years. This is a trust that pays an enhanced dividend based on 4% of its year-end share price. So that meant that its dividend for 2022 saw a 21% fall. 2022 annual figures from Aurora, ticker ARR, this has a very concentrated portfolio of mostly UK stocks, and it showed a decline similar to the Invesco Trust at minus 17.4%. However, it measures itself against the FTSE All Share, which rose 0.3% last year. Balance Commercial Property Trust, ticker BPCT, had annual results for the year ended 31st of December. As with other property funds, it was a tale of two halves. We saw a first half NAV gain of about 12%, but that was more than wiped out by the valuation falls in the second half after gilt yields spiked. For 2022 overall, the NAV return was minus 9.2%. So far in 2023, the Trust said its uh, occupational markets have generally been more robust than might have been expected, and investment market activity, at least in some sectors, has rebounded. It remains hopeful that the UK real estate sector will begin to see a recovery in the second half of 2023, particularly if there's not sustained tightening in credit markets. So a note of cautious optimism there. There's a similar story at Aberdeen European Logistics Income, ticker ASLI. It saw a 7.8% NAV decline for 2022 and said its core focus over the coming months will be on optimising the current portfolio in terms of both occupancy and earnings growth. Half-year figures to the 31st of January were released by Fidelity Asian Values, ticker FAS. This trust invests in smaller companies across the Asia-Pacific region with a slight bias towards value. It returned 
10.3% on an NAV basis and 17.3% in share price terms. And that was well ahead of the 3.6% gain produced by its benchmark. However, since its current manager took charge about eight years ago, its performance is pretty much in line with its benchmark on an NAV basis. Other results in the past week included Fair Oaks Income, ticker FAIR, that's a structured debt fund. It saw a 1% NAV decline over the course of 2022. And we also had annual 2022 figures from Middlefield Canadian Income, ticker MCT. Here, the share price and benchmark both rose about 5%, but the NAV return was less impressive at minus 3%. There was some other news away from the results. We had RTW Venture Fund, ticker RTW, that jumped after saying that Merck has agreed to acquire Prometheus Biosciences at a 75% premium. Now, Prometheus is RTW's largest investment, and it represented about 15% of its NAV at the 31st of March. Triple Point Social Housing, ticker SOHO, S-O-H-O. That was another big gainer after it joined the ranks of alternative asset trusts that have announced share buyback plans in recent weeks. Triple Point is allocating £5 million initially. So investors, that's quite a small sum, investors are probably more pleased by the statement that it might buy back further shares using any proceeds from a portfolio of properties it is looking to sell. Finally, a couple of larger acquisitions worth mentioning. Biopharma Credit, ticker BPCR, an interesting debt fund that specialises in loans to life sciences businesses. This announced a new loan investment of $120 million to NASDAQ-listed Biocrest Pharmaceuticals, with the possibility of a further loan of up to $60 million. And this trust announced a, a smaller loan last week as well. And we have a profile of this trust coming up this Wednesday for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle. And finally, Caledonia Investments, ticker CLDN, that's spending $142.5 million on a 99.8% equity stake in AirServe Europe, which makes air, vacuum and jet wash machines for petrol stations. The other 0.2% will be owned by AirServe's management team. So it was my uh, pleasure earlier this week to catch up with Paul Folks Davis, who is the chairman of a company called Rising Sun Management, which in turn is the fund management company of a interesting investment trust called Nippon Active Value, ticker NAVF, which has a market capitalization of around 170 million and has just completed its uh, third year as a listed uh, investment trust, having uh, IPO'd at a very interesting time in February, I think, 2020, which is just before the world awoke to the pandemic and we entered into COVID and lockdown and all those uh, kind of things that happened. So at least you got your trust away, Paul, but uh, it was perhaps not the ideal uh, baptism for a new investment trust. Well, we wanted to raise about £300 million. And that didn't prove possible during COVID. It was very hard to go marketing, obviously. And in the end, we, we launched at 103 million. So we're very pleased to be at 170 now. And that reflects that we've, I think, done quite well. Indeed. Your trust sits in the uh, Japanese smaller companies subsector of the investment trust universe, but you have a very distinctive investment approach. I'd like to hear your explanation of it. But essentially, as I understand it, this is a a very concentrated portfolio of holdings in companies where you hope to see change in the way that managements and boards behave uh, by virtue of being an activist investor. Would that be a, a kind of short summary? Yes, I think that would be very fair. We try to do two things, really, especially when marketing. We, A, try and persuade people that 
if they haven't got Japan or if they've only got a little Japan, they should have some more because Japan is one of those underinvested but wonderfully cheap markets. And we then say, but within Japan, we are a specialist operator that is trying to influence the managements of the companies in which we invest. So in that 170 million, we are currently invested in 22 companies. And that's sort of the number of investments that we tend to keep between 20 and 25. So what we're trying to do by being an activist is suggest that the managements of these sorts of companies, and these are companies that are run by what are called salarymen, people who don't have an economic interest in the company, they probably don't own any shares at all, or if they do, very few, and they almost certainly didn't found the company, and they're not owner-managers. So their principal role in life seems to us anyway to be to preserve the company and preserve their jobs within it. And they tend to have very large amounts of cash or cross-shareholdings or property, normally so much so that the company actually trades below book value. So there are a number of companies. In fact, I can actually tell you the number of companies. There are 922 companies, which is 50% of the prime market in Japan that trades below book value. 934 companies, or 64%, that trade below book value on the standard market. So as you can see, a majority of Japanese companies, unlike anywhere else in the world, trade at a discount to their book. So the Japanese government, through a series of corporate governance reforms, has been trying to push them in the direction of more efficient capital allocation. And we use that as a wind at our backs to engagement management and try and make them think about share buybacks, increasing the dividend, allotting themselves restricted stocks so that they start to think more like shareholders and have an economic alignment with their other shareholders. And finally, if we really think that the company would be better private, we try and push them into doing an MBO or a management buyout. So, I mean, this has been known for many years that Japanese corporate governance is not, uh, should we say, uh, closely aligned with uh, shareholder interests. But there has been a trend towards that, as you say. Uh, the government in Japan has taken uh, some initiatives to try and drive some change in the Japanese market, which, as you say, these salaryman companies, I think you described as being uh, often run by recalcitrant or just plain lazy managements. Uh, I guess the obvious first question is, well, when you turn up to meet these companies, and uh, I do recognize that after COVID, it was quite difficult for you to get to meet them initially. Uh, what sort of reaction do you get? Can you get through the door for a start? And if so, uh, what happens once you are through the door? Well, it, you know, it's very strange because you're quite right. Recalcitrant is, is a strong word, but they are on the whole resistant to change. Something as a Cambridge bursar, I used to get quite used to because uh, so are most governing bodies of Cambridge colleges. But uh, what you do is you write them a letter. And you say, we are on your share register. We have these many shares. This is what we like about your company. And this is what we don't like. And we would like to uh, discuss how we could help you with your capital allocation to make your companies more efficient. And the Japanese being unfailingly polite will always actually say, after you've asked them once or twice, yes, we will be happy to have a meeting with you. So you then have one of these bizarre occasions on Zoom, still now, but particularly during COVID, where I'm at one end with my Japanese colleagues in Tokyo, and right at the end of what looks like a football pitch or, or a cricket pitch better, there are a group of men normally wearing masks, uh, impossible to see their faces, but the camera is trying to take them all in rather than focus on them individually, so they, they really are quite difficult to talk to. Uh, and we try and have a conversation and get to know each other. And that has worked better 
and worse with individual companies, but no company has ever said they wouldn't meet us. And three years later, now, because we have a certain reputation and because I'd say the whole climate towards activism and change generally is moving, we also have some successes. So although they always say no, they subsequently do what you ask on many occasions. Yeah, that's encouraging. So uh, as I understand it, you've had one company which has done an, an MBO. I think that's right. And you've got another one which is- Two now. Two now. And two another now. one has done it or has just about to do it? No, it has done it. So the first one was Sakai Ovex. They did it in the summer of 2021. And Ihara Science has just taken itself private. So that company closed its um, MBO two weeks ago now. And we're in discussions with them to see what they do and where they go now that they're a private company. As we have an interest in two legs of this, we'd like to make money- obviously on the exit in an MBO. But if we can, we'd like to stay invested to a greater or lesser extent in the private company to see what happens to it and whether it gets relisted later or absorbed into the supply chain as many of these small industrial companies should be or something else happens. Okay. So you yourself, as you said, you're as well as being a former bursar of a Cambridge college, you're also uh, an ex-investment banker. Does an MBO in Japanese terms, it, we're not talking about a kind of US-style 1980s leverage buyout, are we? Are we talking about something rather more sedate than that? How are these things structured? Well, actually, they are structured with a great deal of debt because these companies, as we've already established, tend to be rather low in their valuations. So they are, by definition, cheap. They also tend to have a large amount of cash on the balance sheet which is available to be used either to return to shareholders or in the case of an MBO, to buy back their own stock. Plus, the Japanese banks, much maligned because of their refusal to help when the world went bust for the Japanese in the late 1980s, are now very happy to lend. So in fact, most of these MBOs are carried out by often the aged leader of the company, of men in their 70s and 80s, using leverage supplied by the local banks. So another reason why we try, if we can, to get invested in the private company is it actually doesn't cost very much to have a reasonable percentage of the private company. But they are wise to that, which is why they resist our uh, having it. And presumably, I mean, once the banks are ready to lend, at least for the moment, they can lend it, uh, or at least from the company's point of view, they can raise this money in uh, at a very competitive interest rate. Or fantastically cheap, cheap, yes. Yeah, exactly. Fantastically cheap, because <laughs> interest rates are so low in Japan and have been deliberately held low by the uh, central bank. So I'm sort of getting the just a general picture here. So your argument basically is why should anybody look at your investment trust is that uh, Japan is a cheap market anyway, but you can, as it were, get an extra bang for your back by going into a corporate situation where you can make additional returns in other ways. Yes. You know, I think there are two things. Japan geographically is interesting. Activism as a style of investment is interesting throughout the world. It's particularly interesting in Japan because it's much easier to, I don't choose this word carefully, bully managements of Japanese companies than it might be of British or European or American companies because they've got much less to defend in the sense of how they run the company. So they are vulnerable. Uh, but this has become quite a popular space. I mean, there are a number of activist funds which are trying to do what you're trying to do. So what advantages do you have when it comes to uh, this kind of investing in Japan? Well, for one thing, because we only raised $100 million at the beginning, we realized that we couldn't go after mid-cap or large-cap companies. So we've, to date, really kept in the smaller-cap space, and there aren't that many players 
at least internationally there. There's one other UK investment trust that fishes in these waters. There are, as you rightly say, other activist investors, people like Oasis, who've gone after Fujitech recently very successfully, and obviously much bigger funds, Elliott, who go after the big fish. But there aren't that many in the smaller company space. The principal bad guy in our area is the Murakami family. They're a domestic player, if you like, in the smaller cap space. And providing we, we don't behave as badly as poor Mr. Murakami is assumed to behave, we remain slightly more acceptable than he does. But you know, when you're dealing with a possibility of getting on for 2,000 companies that you could be looking at that are trading below book value, there are very many fish in the sea, and we're only just beginning. So there's no shortages, if you like, of targets for us to go after. Our particular advantage in doing this is that because we're affiliated with Dalton Investments, which is a large US fund manager, where my partners are also partners of, of that entity, we have an office in Tokyo, and it has six analysts in it, one of whom is dedicated to Nippon Active Value Fund. Other investors in this space don't have that kind of advantage. Every one of these guys was educated at a US business school. So they tend to think both uh, in a Japanese way, which is very straight up and down and very clear in what they think, but also around corners in the Western style, which actually gives us a, a real advantage. So having these people on the ground, able to go and visit companies, having the president of Rising Sun Management being an M&A partner of our law firm really gives us an edge, we think. You recently produced your uh, annual results. I noticed that uh, it was interesting you said the impact that actually having a, a newspaper article published in the Nikkei, which is the main kind of business newspaper in Japan, was that a surprise to you? Or was that a deliberate tactic on your part? Or, or tell us how that came about and whether you think that actually was a really significant factor in, uh, in achieving the change you wanted at that particular company. Well, we go to Tokyo quite often. I went in May last year. I'm going again in two weeks' time. My partner, Jamie, has been, I think, three times in the intervening period. So when we go, we tend to talk to everybody we can, not only our client companies, but prospective client companies, to the PE houses who are following all of these companies very closely, but don't want to be seen as aggressors, but are quite happy to act as white knights, to the banks who are increasingly willing to think about lending to uh, foreign companies, which they would never have done in the past, and also to the journalists. So... This article that you're referring to was written by a man called Kohei Onishi. He uh, works for the Nikkei. He's now based in London. But I, at the time I met him, he was in Tokyo. We've stayed in touch. He likes to write articles every now and then about what's happening in the activist space. When we spoke, I pointed out to him that there was one company in particular, a company called Mitsuboshi Belting. It makes rubber belts, surprisingly, particularly for Toyota, makes most of their timing belts. In fact, in a more efficient or a different market, it would have been absorbed into the supply chain of a Ford or a BMW, I'm sure. But in Japan, large companies like to keep their suppliers uh, almost as kind of vassal states where they're able to control uh, what they receive and what they pay for it. So that's been Mitsubishi Belting's experience. When we saw the management, they had already read the letter that we'd written them. They had already noted that we've been talking to other companies in the portfolio. And they said, actually, we agree with a lot of what you say. We have too much capital. We can't deploy it in the business. What we're going to do is institute a uh, large buyback, 10% of the shares. 
and we're going to pay out 100% of our profits for the next three years, as well as initiating a program of restricted stock for management. So this rather took our breath away, and we agreed at that point to withdraw the recommendations that we had made to their AGM, which is what they wanted. They said, if we do all of this, will you withdraw your demands at the AGM? I don't quite know why Japanese companies are, are sensitive about this, but maybe it's to do with face or whatever. But they were very keen that we didn't make difficult recommendations. And since they were going to do what we asked anyway, we said, yes, we'd be happy to withdraw them. Uh, and the stock rallied 80%. In fact, now we're up about 109% on our position. So Kohei, on hearing all of this, actually rang them up and had a conversation with them, which I hadn't expected. And when he wrote his article... He wrote it from the perspective of this is what Paul Folks Davis said, and this is what the company told me. And it had a very galvanizing effect on a lot of other smaller companies, some of which we were invested in. It's a very because I was leading up to the question of what is it you think that is the sort of clinching argument? Because as we know, Japan is a very, you know, operates by consensus and so on, at least traditionally. And face is very important, as you say. So I was wondering what the clinching sort of arguments you can put to them is. But it's interesting, this experience of withdrawing your proposal so that they can then present it to their shareholders as uh, as being... Their idea or... Their idea or whatever. They haven't been forced to do anything. That's very interesting. So do you think that's going to be, you hope, a paradigm that might happen in the future again? Well, it's happened already with several other stocks that we, we own. Ibarra Jitsugyo, Teikoku Electric, Bunker Shutter, they've all done some or all of the things that we've asked for. And I think it's because we're not asking for anything that is terribly debilitating or bad for their companies. Many of these companies, because they don't know what to do with their equity, make rather poor acquisitions. So rather than do that, why not return some money to shareholders or buy your stock back, which will help your uh, position on the prime section of the market. One of the sticks with which we have to beat them is that the government has said, look, we've reorganized the stock exchange. This was in April 2022. We've created a prime and a standard section. And a lot of you very small companies, because you were always in the first section of the old stock exchange, have automatically assumed that you want to be in prime. There's no particular reason why you should, but if you want to be in prime, you are going to have to increase liquidity in your shares and you're going to have to trade above book value. Well, as we've already established, more than 50% of the market doesn't. So they're all trying to think of ways of securing their place in prime. And you know it makes it that much easier for us to point out there are ways that they can do this within their own power, if you like. So that was obviously a significant factor of the stock exchange reforms, if you like. I mean, we've been talking about this corporate governance revolution in Japan and, and the fact that Mr. Abe recognized there was a problem and wanted to do something about it. Uh, but would you say that the pace of change has been as rapid as expected or less rapid than expected? Or is it just an ongoing uh, process? I mean, things don't move that fast in Japan, I think. I think that's true. I'm not a long-term Japan investor in the way that my partners, Jamie and Gifford, are. So I've only got my experience of the last three years or so to notice, if you like, how the process is accelerating. But what I would say is that it's going a lot faster in the second 18 months of the life of our fund than it did in the first 18 months. So I would say that it is now accelerating quite quickly because some of the bigger companies are having to change or being taken down or being taken apart. Smaller companies are quite easy to uh, have an effect on. And increasingly, they realize as soon as an activist investor shows up on their share register, 
that they are going to have to do something. In addition to which, there are specific blogs that get written every day. I'm thinking of John Seagram, who writes a very good blog on CLSA every day, for CLSA every day, which focuses really almost entirely on activism in the smaller company sector. So lots of people can see what we're all doing. So if we just turn to the kind of risks, if you like, uh, I noticed one of the things you mentioned, a company where you have to take quite a big position, I guess, to get noticed. You have some 10% in one or two companies. But then if they don't, if the management resists what you're doing uh, and won't play ball, and some of them, I think, still don't play ball, how do you get out of your position? Because you're in a presumably quite an illiquid stock anyway. So is that a, is that a risk or a problem for you? Uh, it's certainly a risk and it's certainly a problem. Gifford has a rather good term for these sorts of positions. He calls it being a stockholder. And we are a stockholder in one or two companies. Let's think about them. The biggest company that we went for originally is a company called Intage Holdings. It's a very good company. It's um, a market research company, Japan's largest. Uh, if you like, it's their alternative to Nielsen. We have got about 12.5% of that company now because we've recently been buying it again. We have had very little luck in engaging with the management there who always say no and don't tend to do what we're pushing for. I would say, though, that we've detected a slight change in their attitude and they have instituted um, a restricted stock program for senior management and they have increased their dividends recently. So perhaps even there, things are starting to move. But what we think we have to do with companies like that is keep going and keep buying. So one of the things that we were able to do about a year ago, was put in place a memorandum of understanding with our US cousins, Dalton Investments, so that we can co-invest in each other's ideas. This gives us the capacity to buy larger positions in both smaller and, and now mid-cap companies. So take another example, TNK Toka. TNK Toka is Japan's largest ink and resin maker. We had over 22% in that company at the moment when we announced that we were going to make a tender offer for a controlling minority, about 44%. Now, we couldn't do that without the additional firepower that comes from our American cousins. As it happens, our tender offer failed. So we didn't get the number of shares we wanted. But what that's resulted in is a dialogue with the company that we didn't have before, which I have high hopes will produce an interesting result uh, in due course. I can't talk about what we're talking about because it would make us all insiders, but basically just making a tender offer got management's attention and got us talking in a way that we hadn't been before. So yes, we don't want to be stockholders, but we think over time as the fund grows and we are able to take larger positions because we've always said that we will take a normal position of up to 25% of a company, that really does get their attention. You are their largest shareholder at that point. So you talked about this uh, strategic partnership with Dalton Investments, who have a long history of investing in Japan, and that's partly to get more firepower, as, as you're effectively what you're saying. But you managed to get a, a second reissue away in November 2021, and for a while you're, that was because your shares had reached uh, NAV or trading at par or at a premium. But there, since then, they've been at a discount. What can you do, do you think, to try and get your shares back to uh, a premium? And, and presumably, you'd still be interested in raising more equity if that opportunity uh, arose. Well, you're absolutely right. And we are rather discombobulated by the fact that we are the top performing fund and have been for about nine or 10 months now. And yet we're still trading at a discount. We don't really fully understand. There are other less successful funds that trade at premium or NAV. And, you know, 
it has to be a function, I think, of the liquidity of the fund, which isn't as great as we would like. Unlike many investment trusts, we don't have as much retail as uh, they do. Retail tends to be pretty good for your liquidity. They trade a lot, and uh, maybe that's our particular problem. You, as you say, in November 21, we raised £14 million. We thought we were going to raise about £100 million because everybody said, yes, we love it. But then they said, but the problem is, because you're only at a, I think we were about £140, £150 million then, we can't make you a core holding in the large fund. So what we know is that uh, investment trusts being investment trusts, we need to have 250 to £300 million before people will make us a core holding. So that is the object of the exercise. There are a number of things that we can do. The most obvious one is another secondary offering, which we will try and do this autumn, providing our performance stays good and investment trusts become a little more sexy or a little less unsexy, which uh, they, they do tend to be. And the uh, discount disappears, but it's it varies. It's about 6.5% at the moment. I have to think that we must be able to trade our way out of that over time. There are also other things that can happen. There are corporate actions that can allow the fund to grow quite rapidly. And, you know, We're looking at situations like that as well. So the intention is for this fund to, to grow beyond 250, 300 million and to become a much bigger entity, which would also allow us to go after the mid-cap companies as well as the small caps. Let's uh, talk then briefly, if we may, then just about the Japanese market. We said it's cheap and it's been cheap for a long time or appears to be. But there does appear to be a catalyst, two possible catalysts I could put to you. One is uh, the fact that the yen is possibly very undervalued. A lot of people think that the dollar may be about to turn. That would be uh, a factor. Sterling against uh, the yen, also important factor if you're investing in the investment trust. Uh, Plus, we've got a potential change in central bank policy. So I wonder whether you think that there is a a sort of kicker to Japan coming from either those sources or some other. The answer is yes, I do think that. I mean, if you look at our performance since we began, we're up about 50%. If this was not a sterling fund, we'd be up about 72, 73%. That's the underlying yen. So now that Mr. Kuroda has retired, we, like everybody else, are expecting that over time there will be a gradual reversal in the policy to keep the yen as cheap as it has been, although it isn't happening very quickly. But it is starting to happen. And we've already made up 6 or 7% or so of uh, that differential. So we believe that there will be a kind of wind at our backs as the yen gradually corrects, if you like. In terms of Japanese central bank policy and the economy generally, my assessment not necessarily shared by by everybody, is that Japan's in pretty good shape. Uh, It doesn't really have an inflation problem. The inflation that they have, they're importing deliberately. They're they're importing energy inflation. This is to persuade Mrs. Watanabe to allow Mr. Kishida to do what is his stated policy, which is to recommission all his nuclear, because Japan has about a 40% excess in power generation capacity, and it's in the closed-down nuclear facilities that were closed a few years ago because of a tidal wave rather than anything that went wrong with nuclear. So other than trying to push energy prices up so that he can say, we can start the nuclear again and and bring them down, they don't really have food inflation. And to the extent that the world joins in with the American initiative to try and do less with China, who are going to make our washing machines and our dishwashers and all the rest of it than the people who used to make them and are industrially better able to do it than the Vietnamese 
and the Indians and all the other people here are going to do it. So I think there is a, a big opportunity for Japan in white goods and other boring stuff, notwithstanding the semiconductors and the more advanced technology, which Japan's already the leader in other than Taiwan, for the economy to thrive. So I think Japan's in good shape. It has a demographic problem. It always has had that problem. They are going to have to get more comfortable with immigration and how they deal with foreigners. You're right, they are suspicious of them and they always have been. That's why they don't like being bullied by gaijin fund managers who who tell them how to manage their capital allocation policy. But it's all happening and it's going to continue. That's very interesting, that story about Japan, and I think uh, accords with a number of people's uh, instincts of those I've talked to. So uh, thank you very much, Paul, for sparing your thoughts with us. And, uh, well, wish you well with the investment trust that you are trying to push even further ahead. As I mentioned earlier, I uh, took the opportunity to catch up with Ian Lance, who is one of the co-managers of the Temple Bar Investment Trust. He and his colleague, uh, Nick Purvis, who've been working together since 2007, got awarded the mandate through their uh, fund management firm, RWC, back in October 2020, which, as you'll recall, is uh, shortly after the big crisis around the pandemic and lockdown, which saw the equity markets take a big bath briefly, as it turned out. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, Temple Bar has always been managed in a particular style, has always been known as a kind of value investment style trust. And uh, the board of uh, Temple Bar took what at the time seemed to be quite a brave decision to stick with a value style. We'll talk to you shortly, Ian, about exactly how you interpret that. But they, they took the decision to stick with that style, even though growth was all the rage at the time. It was the year when Scottish Mortgage and all the tech trusts went to the moon and have since come back. Uh, but it's proved to be a good decision. So uh, you must be pleased with where we've got to so far, given your record since uh, you took on the mandate. Yeah, we're really pleased, and and I would echo that sentiment. Actually, it was a it was a brave call by the trust at the time, and, and subsequently turned out to be a uh, a very good call. So, you know, the trust since we took it over is up over eighty percent versus about forty five for the market. So, it's been a good period. So, it was a good time to be a contrarian, as we know. Um, obviously, if you'd held on to uh, all your growth trusts instead, you would have been quite happy for a while, and then uh, you'd be all the way back down to where you were in 2020, because of what's happened in the last uh, 15 months or so. So you've just reported your results, obviously your most recent results, and they uh, show that last year, it was a difficult year for all equity managers last year, and you weren't immune from that. Um, Tell us what your experience was uh, during the year. It was a really topsy-turvy year, actually, Jonathan. We sort of came out of the gates actually flying, and I I suppose that was because um, lockdown had pretty much finished, hadn't it? And I think there was a renewed sense of optimism, wasn't there, back at the start of the year for a month or so. And then obviously we had the conflict in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, energy prices obviously went through the roof. People became much more pessimistic about the state of the economy. And so that sort of early performance dwindled in the middle of the year. And, and, And I suppose if you mix in with that, the feeling that actually the whole idea of transitory inflation that our central bankers had assured us of had actually not come to pass and actually probably inflation was here to stay and therefore interest rates were going to have to go up. I think that was another reason that people became quite pessimistic about the economy. We have quite a cyclical orientation in the trust at the moment. That's where we think the value of the market is. And so for a while, we struggled. And then towards the end of the year, actually, I think as particularly the UK economies did slightly better than some of those very pessimistic forecasts from the likes of the Bank of England and the OBR 
again, we saw a bit of a rebound in cyclical stocks, which carried on into the start of this year. So it was a topsy-turvy year, but actually overall, okay. So overall, obviously, your trust is in the UK equity income sector. And I think your NAV total return after taking out the dividend was uh, just slightly negative, minus 2%, compared with the all share index, which was essentially flat. So it seemed to me the message of 2022 was uh, you definitely didn't want to lose uh, money or didn't want to lose too much money. You wanted to stay in the game because while we uh, saw the way that the uh, fight against inflation, the surge in bond yields and so on, the big interest rate rises uh, played their way through. Uh, but more recently, as you say, it's been more positive. What do you make of the uh, performance so far this year? We talked about last year. What about this first quarter? We had a strong January Then we had a kind of sell-off in February and into March. We had some banking issues and uh, we had some style rotation. So that kind of volatile backcloth is still continuing, is it not? It very much is. And in some ways, actually, it's almost been a kind of mirror image. So we came out of the start of the year very, very strongly as, as that cyclical recovery Continues, and then uh, you're right. I think you know we we had a couple of things going on, didn't we? Have the you know the banking crisis that made people quite worried, and then I think also there's a perception, isn't there, amongst a lot of people that inflation has peaked, that interest rates are going to come down, and we've seen a big rotation back towards growth and back towards technology stocks, which to my mind seems to be premised around this view that you know inflation is done and dusted, and interest rates are going to come down. I personally don't agree with that view, actually myself. But for the moment, that means we've seen a sort of a big rotation into growth. But, you know, so far, it's still been an okay year, actually. So in terms of what you do, I mean, you might just quickly remind us what your interpretation of what being a value investor means. Mm. And, you know, how active are you when we're in these kind of volatile markets? Are you trying to uh, trade these kind of cyclical sectoral rotations rather, style rotations rather? Or are you kind of just sticking to your knitting through this kind of phase? The answer to that last question is sticking to our knitting. So our... Our turnover has been exceptionally low, actually, for, for for over a year or so. We've done virtually nothing at all. We're very, very boring from that point of view. To answer the first part of your question, how do we define value? We define value as we're basically looking to buy things at roughly a 50% discount to intrinsic value, which leads to the question, well, how do you calculate intrinsic value? And without getting too technical, what we tend to do is we will look at a business, we'll look five years out and we'll ask ourselves, where do we think the earnings can get back to? And our sort of rationale for doing that is that we think lots of investors have a tendency towards uh, extrapolation and overreaction. So if you have a business which is struggling either for a business reason or as, as a function of the economic cycle or business cycle, earnings go down, the share price tends to follow it and people will often put sort of low multiples on low earnings and What that means is that on the assumption that those earnings are going to recover, what you end up with is a stock trading, a a big discount to what we believe is the intrinsic value. So we will ask ourselves, where do we think the earnings can get back to on a five-year view? We'll attach a multiple to that. We, again, without going into too much detail, we'll sort of make certain adjustments in which we try to convert accounting earnings into cash earnings. And we'll come up with a, an estimate of intrinsic value. So, you know, let me finish by giving you a quick example. So I think possibly last time we met, actually, we spoke about Marks and Spencers, which is quite a big holding of the trust. Our view is that the earnings of that business can get back to about 25p. We would attach a multiple of 12-ish times, something like that. Therefore, we would think that the intrinsic value of that business is is somewhere around £3. Share price today is, is, is around pound fifty. So we think there's significant upside with Marks and Spencers. Okay, so that's a kind of classic value opportunity where the market, you think, has basically, uh, to some extent, got it wrong. Let me just add one thing, though, Jonathan, which is that I think there's, in the last few years, it's funny, isn't it, that sort of the investment world has split into value and on the other side, quality slash growth. 
and to a certain extent, we've always seen that as a bit of a misnomer. The reason I say that is that we have absolutely no problem with, you know, high growth or high quality companies. We just don't like overpaying for them. And, you know, it'll, it'll often make people laugh that if you go back far enough, we used to own stocks like Microsoft. Why did we own Microsoft? Well, because once upon a time, you could buy it on a price earnings ratio of eight times because everyone thought that its business was busted, <laughs> believe it or not. So I suppose I just wanted to add that because I, I don't want to create the perception that, you know, value investing is basically all about buying cyclical rubbish because it's, it's absolutely not. Okay, so if we actually look at what you own in your trust, obviously there's a lot of very large and familiar names from the UK market. And principally at the top of the list, you're going to find uh, the two big oil companies and uh, mining companies. So are you taking a view in that about what's going to happen to commodity prices? Or are you actually taking a view about just the way that they're rated in the market? We're not forecasting commodity prices as such with those sorts of industries. We use an approach um, that's often referred to as capital cycle approach, which is just simply saying that with those sort of capital intensive industries, which have very long lives to the assets, they tend to go through these boom bust cycles, don't they? And with both energy and with mining, what we've seen for the last probably about 10 years, actually, is an awful lot of capital has come out of the industry for various reasons. At the start, probably because they'd overinvested and they needed to take capital out. But since then, you won't be surprised to know that it's because of political pressure, ESG pressure, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, just to give you one example, if you look at the energy industry, if you adjust for the growth in GDP across the decade, the capital expenditure in the industry is minus 70, 70% over the last decade. And I think there's a perception, isn't there, that demand for fossil fuels will fall, and they probably will fall at some stage, but they're certainly not falling at the moment as economies from uh, China, India, Africa, et cetera, continue to grow and continue to consume fossil fuels. So what you've seen in that industry is um, not enough investment go in, supply not particularly growing at all. Last year, we only apparently discovered a third of what we produced in the world in terms of fossil fuels. Uh, and that tightness in supply has lead, led to an increase in commodity prices. These things are very geared and therefore free cash flow has gone up very significantly. And I suppose the final interesting part of the thesis is that ordinarily the solution to high prices is high prices, isn't it? Because ordinarily these companies would start to massively increase their capital expenditure. And of course, at the moment, that is not happening. That's not happening because they are under severe political and ESG pressures not to increase their capital expenditure. And so you've got this weird situation whereby commodity prices are telling these companies that they should invest, but other people are telling them they're not, and, and, and they're not, and therefore supply is not going back up at the moment. And so it kind of feels to us like we're in potentially an extended cycle. And there's quite a similar thesis with mining. So in terms of the energy and the miners, are you actually uh, overweight relative to the index or not? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And how do, we just, how do you deal with the If you have shareholders to come back and say, well, look, you're kind of flying in the face of the ESG trend. We want our companies to, fund managers to invest on sound ESG principles. Whereas you seem to be saying you're actually kind of looking to um, profit from the fact that there's so much uh, demand for ESG at the moment. It's just a fact of life. Yeah, it's a difficult one, this. I suppose the first thing I'll say is that the board have actually canvassed the shareholders in the trust periodically. And the message from the shareholders in the trust has always been, you put total returns first. You know, we're not buying you to be a an ESG trust. So that's point number one, is I think the mandate is quite clear. Point number two, though, actually, is that these companies are actually, believe it or not, part of the solution. In other words, they are scaling down their investments in fossil fuels over time, just maybe not as fast as some people would wish. And then on the other side, they are investing enormous amounts of money in renewables. 
you know, so the fact that their carbon emissions are set to fall over time, obviously, is part of the solution. The fact that they're willing to invest lots of money in renewables, again, you could argue is, is part of the solution. Let's move on then and talk about banks. You've also got a couple of the big banks. You've got Barclays and NatWest, I think. Yeah, and Standard Chartered and Citigroup. Yeah, so we've had these uh, banking tremors in the US. We've had the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. We've had the issue at Credit Suisse being kind of handed on a plate to uh, UBS because it was in danger of going under. How has that impacted you and has that changed your view about how much you should have in the banking sector? No, not really. We actually think that the banks that we're invested in are completely different animals to the banks back in 2008. And I think for some people, they were so scarred by that experience in 2008, they've almost put a line through the sector. And that's certainly what is implied, I think, by the valuations. You've got you know, several of the companies that you've just mentioned are trading at about half their tangible book despite the fact that they are forecast to make returns on equity of over 10%. So they're trading on very low multiples. Um, I actually updated a few valuations this morning. Barclays, would you believe it, is trading on four and a half times earnings for this year's earnings. So they're trading at very, very low valuations. But coming back to my original point, I think they're significantly better businesses than they were back in 2008. You compare NatWest Group today to the old Royal Bank of Scotland back in 2008, you know, different management, completely different balance sheets, different loan book. I mean, it's just a much, much higher quality business. And yet I think a lot of people are just still very reticent to go there. I think the final thing that I'll say is that I think there's sometimes a um, a feeling, isn't there, that what goes on in one bank must be going on in all banks. And that's certainly when you saw the price reactions to what was going on with Silicon Valley Bank, that certainly seemed to be the suggestion. The reality is actually that there were specific reasons, I think, for the failure of things like Silicon Valley Bank that just don't really apply to something like a NatWest at the moment. And therefore, I, th- I thought the sell-off in the share price was probably unwarranted. And actually, they have started to recover since the initial sell-off. What does seem likely, though, is there will be some changes in the banking market environment. Obviously, uh, a number of depositors are taking their money out and put them into other places now that uh, interest rates are higher. And uh, that's been a good source of earnings in the short term for the banks. But the yield curve is also... Uh, a big factor for the banks. And presumably, I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but one of the concerns a lot of people have at the moment is that the the kind of issues we've had with high bond yields and troubles at uh, Silicon Valley Bank and so on is that corporate lending standards are going to be tightened. And that's going to mean that uh, more uh, clients of the banks may fail. What do you think the banks are doing in response to uh, this new environment? Uh, Are they going to do sensible things? Yes, I think so. The management teams of all these companies are we think are pretty conservative these days. I think they learned the lessons, didn't they, of of what happened when they were too reckless in the run into the financial crisis. And and they've responded by now acting very prudently and very conservative. I think you're likely to see some slowdown in, in lending. That would seem logical to me. Although, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that you're right, you have seen some flight of depositors but actually, from what I read in the US, that money has gone into the bigger, more conservatively run banks. So you often do get this flight quality in, in these sorts of situations. Yeah. And I suppose the banks you do own, they are all in the kind of too big to fail category. So there will be a kind of backstop for the depositors almost certainly. If we look at your portfolio, though, you're an equity income trust. And you obviously, one of the aims is to pay a significant and growing dividend. Yep. What was the underlying income return you got into the portfolio last year? And how does that compare to what you paid out to uh, shareholders? I don't have those figures actually off the top of my head. I suppose to answer it a different way, myself and Nick have always been total return investors before income investors. So we won't just go into the market and basically buy income and overpay for businesses to buy income. And 
with the situation that we had with the pandemic, we felt that lots of the value in the market was in companies where the, the dividends had just been cut. And so we actually you know, bought some companies for the trust where the dividends had been cut and therefore the yields went down. And so what we've been doing over the last couple of years is the income has been recovering off a low level. But as I mentioned earlier on, investors have also been rewarded through a capital return. As I said, the, you know, the trust is up about 80% since we took it over. The dividend yield today is about 4%, which is not bad. We think that probably the average PE across the portfolio is something around 10 times, something like that. So you could think about that as a sort of earnings yield of 10 as well, couldn't you? Which would tend to suggest that the dividends are reasonably well covered, that you've got sort of maybe two, two and a half times cover on the dividend, which should provide room for growth. Right. But your kind of proposition to the shareholders is that the dividend yield on your trust in the equity income sector is, well, it's around average, actually, isn't it? Yes. Yes, but for, for, yeah, for the reason that I stated that our dividend yield is sort of recovering off the level that it got to during the pandemic. And, and, you know, let's be honest, we could increase that dividend quite simply, couldn't we, by going out and just buying, I don't know, tobacco companies, for instance. We happen to think that they're not cheap, that they are not undervalued, and therefore we're sort of foregoing that easy dividend yield, for want of a better word, because we don't see value in that part of the market. Ditto utilities, actually, Jonathan, with it, that's another place people can go to pick up yields. We don't particularly like utility companies either. Let's also talk about the discount at which the shares of the trust are currently trading. I think it's somewhere between 5 and 6%. Uh, you have a discount control policy. Perhaps you could just remind us what that policy is uh, and how active you've been in buying back shares uh, in the recent uh, weeks and months. Yeah, so you're right. There is a discount control mechanism, which is to basically step in and buy shares at around that 6% discount. And I think the discounts across the income investment trust sector have have widened significantly. And therefore, the trust has been pretty active in the last sort of three to four months, actually. We've been active on most days in the market, stepping in and holding that discount. And of course, most of the sector is, is trading on the discount as well. So one of the consequences of, it depends on what your view is about where the world is going, but how difficult has it been to actually persuade shareholders or the market rather to support equity income in this particular climate? Presumably, you'd like to uh, get back to trading at round par if you could. What kind of reaction do you get when you talk to uh, institutional investors in particular about uh, the attractions of equity income in this particular market environment? Yeah, it's been frustrating, to be honest with you, because, you know, as, as we already mentioned, the returns that we produce since we've taken over have been very good. We think that we have a, a very, very positive message at the moment, i.e. the fact that we have um, a portfolio of what we think are very decent businesses that are trading at very low valuations, therefore potentially future returns, we hope, are going to be good for that reason. But what we're facing on the other side is two things, I think. An exodus from the UK, they're still within a lot of institutional investors or wholesale investors. People are still, I think, making that switch out of the UK and into global. This was something I wrote about a few weeks ago. I wrote, I wrote a blog entitled Just Stop Selling UK Equities. And I, I sort of mentioned the fact that, you know, over the last sort of 20 years or so, the weighting of institutional pension funds in UK equities has come down from about 55% to about 5%. And w- one would like to think that <laughs> we'd reached a bottom, but it doesn't feel like we have. Certainly every time I see figures uh, about flows into the equity income sector, there are still quite significant redemptions. So I think there's partly a sort of anti-UK trade. And then also, I think, despite the fact that actually we've done okay recently, value slash income has struggled, hasn't it, relative to growth, if you look at the last decade. And I think you know a, a lot of people still are not geared up to investing in value funds slash income funds. 
So to answer your question, it's, it's been a frustrating period because when we talk to people, I think, you know, people like the message. They seem to like the message. And we seem to get a lot of support when we talk to people, but it's not showing through <laughs> in terms of either flows into the sector or the discount on the trust. So what happens to bond deals actually is pretty important, isn't it, in that context? Some people think we could go all the way back down to, you know, where we were before all this blew up. I don't think that's likely. But, uh, you know, if bond deals actually settle, say, around 2-3%, uh, which would be the normal place to settle if even if they do get their inflation back down to 2%, that's going to make uh, equity income a more attractive proposition in relative terms compared to growth, which in a zero interest rate world uh, was bid up to very high valuation. So in a way, you kind of, well, without asking you to make a forecast about bond yields, because who knows where they're going to go. If there is a change in the investment climate, that's going to work to equity income's uh, favour, is it not? Yeah, yes, it is. And do you know what? I, to a certain extent, I think that that regime change probably started 18 months to two years ago. We went through that decade, didn't we, where people, frankly, didn't really care about fundamentals or valuations or anything like that. You just bought the most speculative stocks. You didn't even care if they had any profits or anything, and they basically just went up. It feels to me like that environment has gone because of the change in the inflation outlook. And I guess without making an inflation or a bond yield forecast, one of the things that we often do is talk about the 1970s, which is the last period that we saw something similar to the current economic environment. And that actually was a, a really fabulous decade for value investing. And there were two reasons for that. Number one is that similar today, starting valuations at the start of that decade were very, very low and, and similar sorts of reasons, actually, because people had bid up the nifty 50, as it was called back then. And so lots of value stocks were very cheaply valued. And the point number two is, I suppose, if you look at the components of the value universe back then, it was energy companies, mining companies. It was companies that benefited from that inflationary environment. And again, I would say there are sort of similarities to today's environment. So yeah, it does feel to me like the backdrop is is significantly better now than it was a couple of years ago. And just in terms of the gearing that the trust employs, what sort of level of gearing do you have at the moment? And if you're right, we're entering into a period when uh, your style of investing is going to do relatively better, at least. What are the kind of parameters around the gearing? And what would it take for you to recommend to the board that they increase the gearing? So the gearing at the moment is about 7%. And that's the sort of level we feel comfortable with, to be honest with you. Nick and I are pretty conservative investors. And I suppose no matter how optimistic we are about the outlook, as someone famously said, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. So, you know, we can never decide if the market might go down. And we absolutely don't want to put the trust in a situation where the gearing goes up merely as a function of the fact that the market's gone down and then we become a forced seller of stocks and actually a level when we want to be a buyer of stocks. So I think we're always going to remain fairly conservative in terms of our use of gearing. Obviously, you're on a UK equity income trust, and uh, most of the stocks you own are listed in the UK. A couple of questions arise from that. And the UK, as you say, is out of favour. Yep. But of course, a lot of the revenues of the companies you own, like the old companies, come from overseas. Yep. So are you worried about either political risk in the UK, or perhaps a UK economic risk? To what extent are you concerned about that? We've got corporation tax going up. We've got uh, slower growth than most other countries, according to the forecasts. Uh, and we've got this trend towards de-equitization. There's been a lot in the headlines recently of you know, companies ceasing to list in the UK because of their concerns about how lowly valued companies are over here. What are your thoughts on those two issues, political risk and where we are in the UK equity market uh, on an international comparative basis? 
Yeah, I suppose if you start with the economic backdrop, what we tend to do there is we don't try to forecast the economy, nor do we try to position the portfolio around any sort of forecast of the economy, because frankly, we don't think we're any good at that. We think probably most other people aren't very good at it either. Uh, certainly, if you look at the record of the Bank of England or the ABR in the last year or so. But what we tend to do is try to exploit what we think is other people's overreaction. So it went when people become very, very pessimistic about the UK economy, that tends to throw up opportunities for us. So that's point number one. Um, in terms of the deactization, it's not ideal, but it would be worse if we didn't run very concentrated portfolios. So Nick and I are very focused investors. We run typically sort of 20, 25 stock portfolios. Can we find you know 25 stocks which we think are good and cheap at the moment? Yes, we can. And I don't see that changing unless you had you know lots and lots and lots of companies leaving the UK stock market. In fact, funnily enough, actually, one of, one of the things that does slightly concern us actually, is that we lose some of those holdings because they get taken over for two reasons. Number one is because they're very cheap. Number two, because we think sterling's pretty cheap at the moment. So if you're a big American corporate sitting there with cash burning a hole in your pocket, you could sweep on UK assets at the moment pretty cheaply. And and I suppose we'd be frustrated. It would be a nice problem to have, but we'd be slightly frustrated to have some of these things taken off too cheaply. So it's sort of good news in the short term, but not so good news in the medium, longer term. Yeah. Sorry, let me just add one thing, Jonathan, which is that what's fascinating to us is the way that there clearly is a UK discount, even in global sectors. So again, we have a chart in our uh, in our slide deck that has all the global sectors, and then it has uh, a dot on it to show the valuation of the UK companies within those sectors. So you know, take, for example, the energy sector. You know, BP and Shell have very, very similar exposures to Exxon, for instance, but they trade on five or six times earnings and Exxon trades on 10 or 11 times earnings. And if you go right across, you know, banks, consumer staple businesses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the UK businesses always sit at the bottom. So that seems odd to us because those are not companies that are reliant on the UK economy. They're very much global businesses. And yet, because they're quoted in London, they're sitting trading at very, very low valuations. So the final question then is, I mean, the issue seems to be we've been talking about the UK being cheap compared to other markets for quite a few years now. It's been part of the narrative since Brexit, among other things. But what is the catalyst going to be that might change that, as you say, other than giving the pension funds a kick up the backside in this country or internationally? What do you think might might be needed to prove the catalyst that's going to lead to that changing? Yeah, Nick and I talk about this all the time. And, you know, by definition, it's always hard to forecast catalyst, isn't it? Because if you could see it, other people would see it and it probably would be priced in already. One thing is that we conclude is actually there might not be a catalyst. It might just be that these businesses sit here on very low valuations and they basically every year they pay you out a dividend and they buy back a lot of stock and your returns come through as a function of that. In actual fact, one of my previous letters to the investors of Temple Bar focused on this issue of share buybacks. And I um, I use the example of uh, of Next PLC. And the figures here, are if you've invested £100 in Next in 2001, it would now be worth £1,800. And yet the top line has only grown in line with UK GDP, so 4% per annum across that period. And you know, so what explains those returns? The answer is share buybacks. So basically the management, when their shares were cheap, they just sat there and they bought back shares and they bought back about two thirds of the shares in issue and hence delivered you that return over that period of time. It might be that that is what happens to lots of our companies. And you know, at the moment, all the energy companies are buying back lots of stock. Um, companies like Centrica, you know, again, buying back lots of stock. So it might be that that's the way that the returns come through to 
shareholders, which is frankly nothing to be sniffed about. I and mean, that would still provide you with a good level of return without necessarily seeing a catalyst. Well, we'll all hope that's the case. I hope you're right. It's certainly good to see uh, boards of companies uh, buying back shares when they're cheap rather than when they're expensive, which is what happened a lot of the time in the Absolutely. past. We don't want to see that again. Okay, so just final question. Uh, put your head on the block. If we look at the FTSE index, it keeps trying to break its all-time high. Do you think we, if I come back in a year's time or two years' time, do you think it will have done, managed to do that? I would hope so, because the, I suppose because we think some of the big constituents within it are cheap. So things like the energy companies, we would expect to be higher over that sort of time frame, and one would hope that that would have pushed it up over that time frame. So that was Ian Lance, co-manager of the Temple Bar Investment Trust. Ticker TMPL, which has a market cap of around 700 million and has, as he said, been performing pretty well since uh, the new managers took over. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.